I'm reading verses 1 and 2 of Habakkuk chapter 3 and then verses 16 through 19. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigeonoth. If you have a little notation in your Bible, it's a reference to a song so that really chapter 3 is really a hymn that was sung of, uh, in response to God's uh, answer to Habakkuk's prayer. Lord, I've heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember to have compassion, or remember mercy. God, uh, verse 16 through 19. I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait patiently for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me to walk on my high places." Have you ever seen any of those um, uh, pocket knives that, that have all those different uh, blades and things in them? I mean, you, you, um, you couldn't carry one. You'd pull your pants off if you tried to carry it in your pocket because the thing must weigh 10 pounds. But you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've seen those uh, uh, knives that just have a, a blade for everything. Well, I got a list of... Uh, what this knife has. Listen to this. Large blade, small blade, corkscrew, can opener, small screwdriver, wire scraper, reamer, scissors, Phillips screwdriver, magnifying glass, wood saw, fish scaler, hook dislodger, ruler, fingernail file, nail file, metal file, metal saw, fine screwdriver, key ring, tweezers, and toothpick. You can move heaven and earth for one of those things. I can't imagine that, that you'd ever find anything that, that you wouldn't have a tool for. If you had one of those, you could, if you could carry it, you know, around. And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with uh, my illustration of faith. It's not unlike our faith. Because I believe that faith is a tool or a resource for every situation. And I don't think it's necessary for anybody to ever have to go outside of his faith to meet any need that he has. I believe that in the boundaries of our faith in Jesus Christ, a man has a resource for every situation. I love it when the 5,000 you know, uh, were hungry and the disciple came to Jesus and said, do we send these people away so they can get something to eat? And Jesus said, no, don't send them away. You sit them down and I'll feed them. 
because you never have to go away from Jesus to find the resource for any need. Jesus said on one occasion, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last. And, and, and really, the Alpha and Omega was the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. I'm the A and the Z. And I got to thinking about that, and I, I thought we have this English alphabet that has 26 letters in it, and you can write every word with those letters. You don't have to go outside the alphabet to, to get a letter to write any word, even if it's a two-letter word or a big word. I heard that last week that Random House Publishing uh, Company had, had, had come out with a brand new unabridged dictionary. thing weighs 12 pounds. It defines 350,000 words. From cover to cover of that Random House Dictionary are six million words. If you took the pages of it, put them side by side, it would reach a mile. But you don't have to go outside the alphabet of 26 letters to write any of those words in that Random House Dictionary. The point is that you never have to go outside the Alpha and the Omega to meet any need. He works, our faith works under any condition. Now, there are some things that have to have, you know, well, you have to have the conditions just exactly right for it to work. These television cameras have to have certain conditions have to be met before they'll work. Your automobile, whatever. But, but, but your faith in the Lord Jesus works under any condition. I mean, as a matter of fact, it works best under the worst conditions. That's why we have it. You know, sometimes I, I think we give the impression that your faith is not working if you're not healthy and wealthy and successful. I mean, the epitome of a working faith is somebody rich, never gets sick, and he's highly successful. And so you can turn on the television and you see this guy with a $500 suit and a Rolex watch. And he's got a wife with a three-story hairdo, you know, and got about six inches of mascara and makeup. And she's got on a you know, low-cut gown with a lot of diamonds, and they're standing there feeling so good, and they say, my faith in God made me a millionaire. Now, I'm looking at that thing, and I'm thinking, I wish my faith, you know, would make me a millionaire. I, I don't have anything wrong with that. And, and, and somehow I feel like sometimes some old boy sitting there looking at that, and he says, I wish I had the kind, my faith don't work, you know. I mean, if their faith make them a millionaire, my faith doesn't work. Sometimes I, I, I just like to turn on PTL or 700 or whatever, just see some old boy there, you know, in dicky overalls. His wife's got some homemade dress on. She's no, she, never, she had never even met a beauty operator. She had never even seen one. And they're standing there, and, and they say, praise God, it works. I'd like to see that just one time. I don't think I ever will. Because the impression we like to give is, and I think that somehow we think this, that the only way you know that your faith works is that everything's going great and you're healthy and you're wealthy and you're successful. I'm here to tell you that faith works under the worst circumstances because you're not, it may be that, that the circumstances of your life never change. I mean, you may never get well. You may be confined to that uh, hospital bed for the rest of your life. I mean, your children may never come home and you may never be able to be successful in your business. Uh, you, I don't care how much seed faith you plant. And the question is, 
is does faith work under those conditions? I'm here to tell you it does. And I'm remembering at that time that Jesus was in that storm, you know, with his disciples, I alluded to it a couple of weeks ago, and the storm came up, and he was sound asleep, and they woke him up and said, don't you care, we perish? And Jesus got up and rebuked the disciples. One of the gospel writers says that he looked at the disciples and said, oh, ye men of little faith, why would you doubt? And then he rebuked the wind. In other words, he rebuked the disciples before he rebuked the waves. And he was saying, in essence, this. You guys don't need to be worried about the storm. You need to be worried about your faithlessness. Sometimes we get our fears in the wrong place, our concerns in the wrong place. I mean, you may, be, you may fear, may be concerned that some of these days down the road you're going to experience a financial failure. You need to be concerned that when you do, you're going to have enough faith. Somebody say, you, don't mean, you mean you don't have enough faith to be healed? That's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about having enough faith to stay sick if God intends for it to be that way. Because some things are not going to change. And what Habakkuk is doing, you see, the whole thrust of this, 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 this book is Habakkuk is helping us to find a faith that remains when the circumstances don't change. Now, I know I'm going to get to heaven I said last week, I, I can sing that song when we've been there 10,000, you know, Amazing Grace. I'm the first one to lift my hand if somebody says who all's going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. I don't worry about that, but, you know, there is a verse that I have a little problem with. It's through many dangers, toils, and snares. I am a little bit concerned about that. I'm not worried about getting to heaven. I'm just worried about hanging in there, you know, through the dangers, toils, and snares. Vance Haven is a great, was a great previous deceased now. Some of you have heard him. Some of you have got his books. He, he wrote a book about the death of his wife through the valley. He wrote the, the title of it is Through the Dark Valley. He said that she got where she couldn't talk, and so she'd write on a little notepad. And he said just before she died, she motioned for the pad. He handed it to her, and she wrote one word and died. And he took the pad and looked at it, and the word was, look at that, listen to this, until... Now, I don't know what she meant to, you know, write the rest of the, what she meant to write, but I have an idea what she was trying to say was this. Until we stand before God, until there is a time when there is no more suffering, there are no more difficulties, until there is a time when there is no more pain, I'm going to go on serving and loving the Lord. I think she probably meant that. I love Kipling's poem, When the Earth's Last Picture is Painted. And the tubes are all twisted and dried. When the oldest color is faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest and faith and we'll need it and lie down for an eon or two until the master of all good workmen put us to work anew. And those that are saved, Kipling has it good, but I changed it. Those that are saved shall be happy. They shall sit in a golden chair and splash on a 10 league canvas with brushes of comet's hair. And they'll find real saints to draw from, Magdalene, Peter, and Paul. And these will work for an age at a setting and never get tired at all. And only the Master will praise us. And only the Master will blame. And nobody will work for money and nobody will work for fame, but each for the joy of his working and each in his separate star shall draw the things as he sees them for the God of the things as they are. But until, see, until that happens, what's going to happen to us? Now the question that Habakkuk raises and answers is this. 
that it is possible for a person to find a certainty on which to build his life regardless of what happens and regardless of the fact that some things never change. And that's what we've been trying to find. What is it? We've been retracing his steps and we've been trying to figure out how he came to that because he starts out in the first part of the book complaining and bitter toward God and he ends up praising God. And somewhere along the line he found that faith that abides and remains regardless of the circumstance. Now you, 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 you've been here before so we're not going to go back over there but I want to come to chapter 3 this morning and I want us to see this faith, this, this response of faith and what it produced, two things. First of all, this kind of faith is a willingness to pray for God to resume or revive His work. I hope you, hope you get that down. It's a faith, it's a willingness to pray for God to resume or to revive His work. Now he says in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, he said, I've heard the report about you, and he said, I feared, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make your work known. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've preached that text here before. You, you, you don't remember it. In fact, I preach that every time we get ready for revival, you know. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And what I'm, what I'm talking about here and what, you know, is that I want to see revival, that is, people get saved and the church to get revived, to be a new enthusiasm and new love for the Lord and that kind of stuff. And, and, and it does have that application. I'm not giving you some, you know, bad stuff here when I preach that text that way. It does have that application, but that's not the original application. It's not the original meaning. This is what he said. He said, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who will march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And Habakkuk is now in chapter 3 praying for God to bring that about. Now I want you to see what's happening here. What Habakkuk is doing here is asking God, is telling God or giving God his permission for God to do whatever God wants to do. Now God has told Habakkuk that he's going to send the Chaldeans and they're just going to come in, these brutish and vicious and, and, and plundering people, and they're just going to wreak havoc. They're going to take everybody's possessions, and they're going to kill folks, slaughter them. In chapter 3, if you read the context, he said, when I thought about that, he said, I literally was drained of all my strength when I, when I, heard, when I thought about it. And God is saying, I'm just going to send the Chaldeans, and they're just going to come in and wipe everybody out. And, and, and Habakkuk has a problem with that. You would too. I mean, that's not something to look forward to. But something happens along the way, and now Habakkuk is even praying that that will happen. And he's saying for God to do what he purposed to do when he made that statement. And this is what happened. Habakkuk is so desperate to see God at work he wants to see God's manifestation and revelation of power and glory 
He wants to see that so badly, he is willing for God to come in judgment in order to see that. I mean, he wants to see God at work so badly, he is willing to give up everything, to lose everything he's got in order to see that. I've said before, and I really believe this, that those of us who would pray, who would pray for revival, if we really knew what that meant, if we knew the implications of that, we'd probably stop praying. Now, when I pray for revival, what I, I, you know, I'd like to see God just bring a real revival to America, shut off the faucet of the pornography and close down the beer halls and and and, and straighten up every crooked politician. <laughs> I'd like to see that happen. But I don't know if God came to me one night and came to my heart like he did to Habakkuk and said, okay, I'll answer that prayer. And the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to send the Russians into America. And they're just going to come in there and wreak havoc. They're going to take all your property, going to close down your church. They're going to just call, I'm going to purge this nation with these wild and reckless and, and impetuous and brutal people. I'm going to send them in here and they're going to just wreak havoc. I don't know whether I keep praying for that or not. I might just want to go ahead and limp along like we are. I mean, I think I could probably put up a little pornography, you know, if, if that were the case. And I, I probably, you know, I'd probably go along with what's here now. And, and I, you know, I, I could go along with the crooked politicians, you know, wherever they are. If, if that's what it takes, I mean, can you pray that prayer? Have you ever, have you come to the place, this is the key, now watch this. This is the key to finding certainty for life. It's coming to the place where you're willing to say to God, God, whatever you want to do, whatever you choose to do, as sovereign God, help yourself. We, we, don't, we don't want to pray that because there's a whole lot of things we don't want him to have. C.S. Lewis, the great English scholar, has written a book called The Great Divorce. It, you know, I, I asked my secretary to find that the other day and, and type some stuff out for it. She thought it was a, she thought it was a book on, you know, on divorce, but it didn't. It's really an imaginary, now, now get here with me. Now I want you to focus right here on me in this thought. It's really the story, it's really an imaginary picture of a busload of people up, gone, went up to heaven, take a kind of a little tour of heaven, and, 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 the, and it's, the, it's an encounter or a conversation between the head angel, this angel of light, and this die-hard sinner that, that, that C.S. Lewis refers to as the ghost. So you got this flaming angel and you got this ghost. And, and, I, and, and it's a little conversation that goes on. I want you, I'm going to read it. It's kind of long, so everybody wake up and listen here. Don't wake up in the middle of this thing. What is he talking about? I never heard that. Is that in the Bible? You know. Sitting on the shoulder, you ready? You ready? Sitting on the shoulder of the ghost was a little red lizard, and it was switching its tail, whispering things in his ear. He turned his head and said to the reptile with a snarl of impatience, Shut up, I tell you. It swished its tail and continued to whisper. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap here, he indicated the lizard, that he would have to keep quiet if he came with me, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do up here. I realize that now, but he won't stop. I guess I'll just have to go home. Would you like for, him to, would you like for me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I'll kill him. 
said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, you're burning me, said the ghost. Stay away. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I, I'm quite open to consider it. But it's, it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because, well, up here it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, please don't bother. Look, it's going to shut up of its own accord. I, I'm sure it'll be all right. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it under control now. I, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, don't you think so? Well, I, I think it over. I, I think it over what you said very carefully. I, I really will. As a matter of fact, I'll let you kill it now, but I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It'd be silly to do it now. I, I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it would not hurt you. I said I would not kill you. Oh, I know you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that way, really. It isn't. Now, listen, let me return by tonight. Get another opinion from my doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why, why do you torture me? You're, you're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why do you just kill the thing without asking me? Before I knew it, it would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it apart from your will. It's impossible. Do I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I, I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it does, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature indicating lizard. You know what I think Habakkuk is doing in this text? I think Habakkuk is saying it'd be better off, I'd be better off dead than not to see God at work. I'd be better off dead than not to see the revelation of God at work. I'd be better off dead than not to hear from God. And I'm willing for God, I'm willing to lose everything I have in order to see God again. Can you pray that? Are you, are you to the position so desperate in life that you can pray, Lord, whatever it takes, even if it takes the judgment and removal of everything precious to me, I am so desperate to see you. I can't go on. That's where you find a faith that remains. That's point one, point two. That just kind of runways got me off the ground and now I'm flying, so we go to point two. It's the kind of faith, watch, it's the kind of faith that rejoices in the presence of God. Now there are two remarkable, remarkable statements made in 
verses 16 through 19 that I've read, two remarkable statements. The first is found in verse 16. It says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Now, very seldom do I like the King James translation better than this New American Standard. But I like this King James translation at this point better than the New American Standard. What the King James translation says is this. I, are you listening? I shall rest in the day of trouble. You, you know, everything has to be just exactly right for me to, to get to sleep. Um, I, know, I know some guys that can, you could be tearing this building down and they could be asleep. Some of you do. I mean, I make more fuss, more racket up here. You sleep pretty well. I, I know that that some of you can sleep in the day of trouble. I mean, you could, I, I believe if they were taking this wall off, roof off, some of you could snap on. I've noticed. Raise my voice, doesn't, doesn't bother. But I can't do that. I've got a friend, he gets on an airplane, and he goes sound asleep. He, he sits down, buckles his seatbelt, and wham, he's out. And we could be in turbulence, the plane could be flying upside down, and he'd be sound asleep. Thank Gets into the dry, into the runway, sits down, you know, they wake him up, and he's off. I guess I'm just, I'm envious of that. I can't do I can't do that. The, Habakkuk says, "Watch this." He said, "I will rest in the day of trouble." Now watch carefully. When a man comes to this faith that has certainty, he shall rest in the day of trouble. Second remarkable statement is the statement made in verses 17 through 19. Now, if you picked up this book of Habakkuk and you read chapter verse 1 down through verse 6, where God says, I'm going to send the Chaldeans and they're going to wreak havoc on the land, and then you, you, you decide, I'm just going to see how this turns out, and you turned over to the, to, the, to the last part of it, you'd think that God came, you know, and just changed all the circumstances and and, and took away the Chaldeans and everything just went rosy. But that's not what happened. He says in verse 17, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the flock shall be cut off, the fields produce no fruit, etc., etc. Now watch carefully. He's saying nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Now he's not talking about luxury in in. in in the land, he's talking about survival. If they don't have figs and and, vine, and fruit, and if they don't have if they don't have flocks and, and 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 crops, the whole nation's going down drain. And Habakkuk is saying, you know, even though that's the nation is going down the tube, he said, I'm going to exult in the Lord. Nothing's changed. You see, God's not going to come down into our valleys of of trouble and you know in a helicopter and airlift us out the only thing that has changed in this whole book is Habakkuk himself the circumstances haven't changed a bit still no produce still no flocks still no crops still going down the tube the only difference is Habakkuk has been changed now what is the secret of it that's what we're after right what is the secret of that I'm going to give you the secret in just a minute. First, I want to tell you about 
1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I have an idea, I have a feeling sometimes that God slips in when I'm asleep and changes my Bible. The reason I think that is because I'm always finding something I didn't know was there. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is an example of that. I mean, I, 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 let me remind you what that verse says. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Hardly a week passes, but what somebody doesn't quote me that, that verse and say, I know that God's not going to put on us more than we're able to bear. Because He's promised that He'll provide a way to escape. That's, isn't that what it said? You know, you get to looking at that though, and you get to, you know, maybe you're, you're looking for an alliteration so you can have a sermon. And, and a way to look for alliteration is to look for words that begin the same way or with the same sound. And so I circle the word escape and I circle the word endure. And I got to thinking about that. Watch this. God says, I'm going to give you a way to escape that you might be able to endure. What's it, what do you mean by that? I mean, I thought if I escaped from it, I wouldn't have to endure it. See, in escape, in that, you know, somebody swooping down and, 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 and taking you out of, the, out of the prison, in that, in that some secret door you find that leads to a back alley where you can get away, isn't that what that means? Escape? How do, I mean, how does it fit together that he gives us a way to escape so that we can endure? Let me see if I know the answer. The endurance is the escape. The endurance is the escape. And what God is saying is this, I am not necessarily going to give you a way so you can get out of the trouble, out of the storm, but I will give you the escape of endurance in it. I love it. I will give you the endurance for it, and that will be the escape. Now, what is the secret of that? The secret of it is the presence of God. Simple, easy answer. Look at what he said. I will exult not in the escape, not in the, in the miracles that I see, not in the changes of circumstances that I don't like. He said, I will exult in the Lord. And the Hebrew construction is, I will rejoice that God is and here. And I will find that all I need in life is to know, is to affirm His presence. It's what the author of the book of Hebrews meant when he said Moses endured seeing him who is invisible. It's what Paul was talking about when he said, we look not at the things which are temporal, but at the things which are eternal. We don't, we don't focus on the temporal storms and circumstances. We focus on the unseen presence of God. It's what Bunyan meant when he said, and in my prison house the Lord came and every wall, every stone in the wall 
was ablaze with his presence. And what he's saying is this, if I know that God is here with me, even if I have to see him in judgment, that's enough to go on. And when you find that, when you find that assurance of his presence and you know he's there, then you have found a resource in your faith for whatever comes. For whatever comes. Let's pray together. Father, now take these words to bring about hope and help and decision. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three invitations. Look here, please. An invitation this morning for you to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life. I think it's a little more than just saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. I think it's the surrender of your heart and life to Him, where you trust Jesus and Jesus only to save you. And trusting in Him is totally adequate for salvation. You don't have to go outside of that faith in Jesus for any other requirement for salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I shared the gospel this week with an older man. He's probably watching, he watches every Sunday. We came down to the decision time. My point was this, that there is no other way to be saved than to trust Jesus and Jesus alone. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I invite you this morning to place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you haven't already, you may have one day way back there joined the church and were baptized, but have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him only? Nothing else is necessary outside of that, outside of Him. You may need to come this morning and place your life in the church because God wants you to be here and you want to be obedient and do that. Or maybe just to rededicate yourself to Jesus Christ, to walk more closely with Him. While we stand to sing, our invitation will not last long. We invite you to come on the very first word, the very first word you come.